Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse number 9 today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Today we come to the seventh beatitude, with, which is both familiar on some level, but also I think might bring a sense of relief. Because one might get the feeling, at last, a beatitude that was, is within our grasp. This is something I can do. You know, enough of the impossible beatitudes of being merciful, of being meek, of being pure in heart. Now it seems that we've come to something that we are capable of doing. But are we? Throughout the New Testament, we find that we are called to be people of peace. Paul told the, Rom uh, the Romans, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then a couple of chapters later, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called us to live in peace. 1 Thessalonians, live in peace with each other. And then Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And finally, in James 3, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So what we find in our beatitude is, in fact, consistent with the rest of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, as we hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is reminded of what we heard Gia read today from Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So far, so good. What we see in this beatitude is consistent with Scripture. And yet, if we keep reading in Matthew's Gospel, we hear things from Jesus, and we see things Jesus, that Jesus does that do not seem to be consistent with this beatitude. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Hard words indeed. And then there is the whole business of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, in which in chapter 23 alone, he referred to them as hypocrites seven times, blind fools, blind men, blind guides, snakes, a brood of vipers. And he said of them, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. This seems to blatantly contradict what we've just read in the seventh beatitude. What's going on? Are we to work toward peace? Are we to be peacemakers or not? Is Jesus the prince of peace or is he not? I would suggest to you that the problem is not with Jesus or the scriptures, but rather our understanding of what peace means and what it means to be a peacemaker. Because after all, we, we just read verse number nine. If you go to the next two verses, actually next three verses, you'll see the inevitability of conflict. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what does Jesus mean in this beatitude? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What is peacemaking? I would suggest to you that it is, in fact, a divine work. It is a work of God. Peace points to reconciliation, and God is the author of peace and reconciliation. Jesus, his son, is the agent, is the agent of peace and reconciliation. As Paul would later write to the Colossians, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God sent his son Jesus to be the agent, the instrument of peace and reconciliation. And as Paul says, to reconcile all things to himself. And by all things, I think Paul means all aspects of creation, that which God has made. Every aspect of our existence as human beings, but every aspect of creation as well. As we've often seen, to understand this, we have to go back to the beginning. When God created the world, there was no need of reconciliation because there was peace. But when Adam sinned, peace was destroyed. Separations came into existence in which, in order for them to work out, if you wish, there had to be reconciliation. They had to be brought back. So there was a separation human from human. This is social death, if you wish, Adam and Eve. They sought to cover their nakedness. There is the separation of human from God. This is spiritual death. Adam hid from God. There is a separation within ourselves, human from human, within ourselves. This is psychological death. The lack, the, what we have as integration is shattered, and we lack this altogether. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, Adam tells God. And then there's this, the separation of humanity from God's creation itself. This is the ecological death that we find. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then creation itself is separated from God, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. For the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. Now, where are these two beings going to live? They cannot live in a world that is in harmony with God. And so God, for the sake of humanity, brings a separation between himself and his creation. He subjects creation to frustration so that humanity can continue to live there. Well, you might wonder, how can God, uh, how can we speak of separation between God and creation? Isn't God omnipresent? How can I be separated from God? Isn't God everywhere? I would ask you, how can we be separated from creation when we live here? We don't live apart from it, do we? Aren't we a part of creation? Well, let me ask you, how can people live next door to each other and yet be separated? How can a person be separated within himself or herself? Um, we seem willing enough to acknowledge ecological problems, social problems, psychological problems. Do we not understand that there is no reconciliation that's been taken place? There's no peace. The peace is gone and if there were peace, there would still need to be reconciliation. 
This is how we, who are God's creatures made in his image, can live in this world where he is present and yet we are still separated from him. And since the fall, we have been separated from God. We have been in rebellion against God and we have been alienated from God. We've been separated from the creator who made us, the one whose image we bear. How strange is that? And the one who gives sense and meaning to all creation. We do not seek to be reconciled to him. In fact, we make or we try to make war against him. The scriptures tell us that no human being seeks after God, which means that no one seeks to be reconciled to God. If there is going to be any move between us and God for there to be reconciliation, it must come from God's side at his initiative. And this he has done, is continuing to do, and will continue to do through his son, the Lord Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians that God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And he continues, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, in fact, to be peacemakers. More on this in a bit. What is the price of peace? You see, this is an important question because usually it's not one that we ask. We simply assume that if there's going to be peace, people are like, okay, that's it, no biggie, and there can be reconciliation and everything is fine. The scriptures, though, are quite clear about the price of peace and reconciliation. We heard this a few moments ago from Colossians that by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is how Jesus has brought reconciliation. And one might well ask, well, why is this necessary? Um, Back to the passage I just read from Corinthians. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That is to say, in order for there to be reconciliation between God and humanity, there, in fact, has to be peace. But there can't be peace because there's something blocking it. There's something right there in the middle of things, and that is our wickedness, our sinfulness, our sins. And it says that God doesn't count our sins against him. So again, we might falsely think, oh, that God just says what sins, don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. Not at all. He took our sins and put them on the Lord Jesus. He did not count them against us, but he put them on him. And so, as Paul would go on to say, God made him sin who had no sin. He took our sins and put them on Christ. Sin brings death, Jesus died. Righteousness brings life, and we have been saved. At this point, you might be thinking, particularly in this heat, let's get to the point, that's all well and good, but what does it have to do with the seventh beatitude? Let me suggest to you several strands of thought, threads of thought for you to pursue, not only today, but through the week. First of all, peace is the way things ought to be. Uh, we looked at this before in the Gospel of John, shalom. It's one of the fundamental characteristics of the messianic kingdom that God will make things right, and that's what peace is. We need to recognize that the world is powerless to give peace. There is enough hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear that every attempt that we make for peace is quickly overwhelmed. For us to try to make things as they ought to be apart from God simply will not work, it will not happen. 
within the biblical framework, attempts to achieve political or personal peace without dealing with the fundamental reasons for the conflict are not pleasing to God. Jeremiah would say of the false prophets, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The disciples lived in the time of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was achieved by the sword. And many people in Jesus' time thought that the Messiah would achieve peace the same way. It's because they had a different definition of peace. A very different definition of peace. I was reminded of what the Roman historian Tacitus said of his own people, looking at the history. They, that is the Romans, made a wasteland and they call it peace. You just, you want peace? Just kill everybody and there you've got peace. Um, If we define peace or shalom as the way things ought to be, then perhaps we could define a person of peace as someone who is as he or she ought to be. The second thing that I want you to think about is that peace is not the same thing as appeasement. Appeasement is an attempt to have peace at any cost, giving in to any demand, doing whatever you have to do to have peace, giving somebody whatever they want just so they'll be quiet and you can have peace. But this is not peace. Peace usually costs a lot, and we see it in the scripture, it costs God his son. And so peace is a treasure, it is costly, it isn't simply giving in to whatever somebody wants. In the same way that we could speak of cheap grace, we might uh, speak also of cheap peace. God gave his son to die, to do the work of reconciliation, to bring peace. But he will not forgive if there is no repentance. True peace and true forgiveness are costly, priceless treasures. But there are counterfeits, and I think these counterfeits are what we're more familiar with and what we're more comfortable with, frankly. Consider the following scenarios. You're a geologist, and you're working in a mountain range, and it happens as you're on top of it. You notice that one particular part of a, a mountain is about to break away, and it's just going to wreak havoc below, and you notice that there's a small village there. So you go down to the village, and you say to people, listen, this part of the mountain is about to come down. It's going to wipe out your village. But then the people become upset with you. You have disturbed our peace. We were at peace. Everything was fine. And you come and you give us this terrible news. You should be a peacemaker. Keep your mouth shut and leave. You're scaring the people. Or consider that you go to the doctor. You're feeling fine, but it's time for the annual checkup. And after all the poking and prodding and blood tests and all that, the doctor tells you that there's something seriously wrong with you. It can be cured, that you've caught it early enough, but there's something seriously wrong with you. And you say to the doctor, doctor, you have disturbed my peace. Be a peacemaker and tell me that everything is okay. Or imagine that you're an Old Testament prophet. God has spoken to you about the coming judgment because the people are disobedient and you warn the people of the coming judgment if they do not repent and turn to God. Other prophets are saying, peace, peace. And you're the one person who is disturbing the peace. The king will refer to you as a troubler of Israel. You're accused of discouraging the people, as Jeremiah was. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. In other words, you're not seeking peace. 
you are not a peacemaker. But appeasement is not peace. Again, to go back to the doctor, if the doctor says, okay, yeah, everything's fine, that doesn't make everything fine. Appeasement is not the same thing as peace. The third thing that I want you to think about is that the work of reconciliation is something that God has committed to us. That's why we are to be peacemakers. Again, from 2 Corinthians 5. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, or Christ's ambassadors, and as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the work that has been given to us. This leads to the fourth thing that I want you to think about, and that is God calls us to be peacemakers. And I think what Jesus has in mind are our social relationships, our relationships with other human beings. In our families, peace is that which binds together the members of a family. In the church, more on this in a bit. In the community, in the city, in the county, state, nation, political peace. Paul told Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Whatever position in life God has called us to, we are called to be peacemakers. And this is hard work. Oftentimes it is painful work. Because it's not appeasement. Appeasement's easier. Peace is not. Reconciliation is not. Consider the matter of church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. I don't know about you, but this is hard. This is hard. I'd rather just keep it inside and and, um, just keep it to myself. And then perhaps become rather proud and congratulate myself for being so tolerant and patient with this person. Or say something like, it's no big deal. It's no problem, don't worry about it. Instead of doing what Jesus calls us to do so that there will be peace and reconciliation, we need to go and show that person their fault. If we do not, we're not peacemakers. We are not making peace. Allowing a child to do as he or she wants is not being a peacemaker. Discipline is peacemaking, and peacemaking requires discipline. In Hebrews 12 we read, no discipline at the time seems pleasant, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In the same way that political or civil peace requires courage, Paul talks about those who bear the sword. In other words, they don't just carry it around, they have to use it. In the same way, we as Christians cannot be at peace with evil. We can't just say, well, you know, I'm a very tolerant person. Thus, this is what we find why Jesus, in fact, confronted the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and even his own disciples when he referred to Peter as Satan. The fifth thing that I would have you think about is that the work of peace begins in the church. In our prayer of confession today, it came from this passage in Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope when you were called. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One could argue that when Paul called the Ephesians, and us as well as we read it, to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace, that this seems rather strange. If in fact we have the unity of the spirit, we're all the people of God, we have the Holy Spirit, then why do we need to work toward, make every effort to keep the bond of peace? After all, we have one God, one Father over us all, who is through all and in all. That sounds pretty indestructible to me. Why do I need to work for the bond of peace? What can Paul mean by this? I think Paul is saying, yes, we are all the children of God, but we don't always get along. If you wish, in the invisible realm, yes, we all have the Spirit of God. But in the visible realm, as we speak to one another, we may not always get along. And we are to make every effort to have peace. In concrete relationships of love that God has created, we are to work to maintain that unity. A unity that in a sense cannot be destroyed, but boy, sometimes it seems like we do our hardest to do that. We are in fact to demonstrate to the world the unity that exists and the reality of peace. There is to be unity within the church, there is to be unity within churches, but above all there is to be unity among God's people. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. As we've said many times before, we believe in unity, not uniformity, but there is to be peace. We have one Father, one Savior, and one indwelling Spirit, and we are to prove that in our relationships with each other. Number six, this is a tricky one. The work of reconciliation on God's part is not the work of negotiation, but of conquest. See, when we think of peace, we think of people sitting down, you've got to negotiate a peace. Uh, but in scripture, God is Lord. He is the King. Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, okay? who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, God rules. This is his world. And remember what Gia read to us earlier about the Prince of Peace? It continues, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Some might argue the point, but the reality is that the work of reconciliation and peace must involve the destruction of evil and sin. And then the last thing for you to consider is the blessing that is found in this beatitude. Those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. Why this particular blessing? Because when we are peacemakers, then we are acting like our Father, who is the author of peace and reconciliation. In closing, I would just want to mention two things. The first is that the biggest misconception of this beatitude is that we can do this on our own. 
And from time to time you hear politicians quoting this particular verse. This is something we can do on our own. But as we've seen, that what Jesus says is contrary to our expectations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. And when I say that these are contrary to our expectations, what I mean is that we do not want to be poor. We do not want to mourn. We do not want to be meek or humble. We do not want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to hunger and thirst for other things. Thank you very much. We do not want to be merciful. We prefer to have our revenge. And I would argue when push comes to shove, we do not want to be peacemakers. We may want to appease, but we do not want to be peacemakers. We don't want to do the hard work, the hard work of making peace. And even if we did decide, if we woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a peacemaker, this is something we cannot do on our own. Remember, we have to go back to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. We are not capable. Our hands are empty in this regard, apart from the grace of God. The second thing I would tell you before we leave is that the work of being a peacemaker never ends. Until Jesus returns, we will always have the work of being a peacemaker. Bob Dylan, years ago in one of his songs, wrote, Will I ever learn that there will be no peace, that the world won't cease until he returns? Everyone wants peace, or they say that they do, but there is true peace and there is false peace. False prophets are condemned for saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. What we need to do as individuals and as a congregation is to sit down and meditate and say, what is peace and what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And why does Jesus include this in the Sermon on the Mount? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that far too often we come to your, to your word, the scripture, with a certain amount of self-confidence that we've read this before and we know what this means. We, we can handle this. When we come to this beatitude, we imagine, yeah, that we can do this. But that oftentimes what we imagine as peace is just allowing people to do whatever they want and us not saying anything. We just appease them. Help us as we think through this beatitude to go back to the first one and remember who we are, that we are poor in spirit. And apart from you, we can do none of these things that we are called to by Jesus in this sermon if we are in fact citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are to be peacemakers. May we think on these things in the days to come. May your spirit bring, bring them back to our memories from time to time. May we meditate on them. But above all, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. I thank you for bringing us together, for keeping each one of us safe. I pray that you would do the same in the coming days. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.